It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. And we are definitely going to talk about the value of uh, defense attorneys in today's discussion. Uh, we'll have a very good one with us. James Dore, uh, as you heard, is uh, always with us, the Lavelle Law attorney who is very much focused on criminal defense. And we've had a lot of opportunities over the last couple of years, really, now to, to get uh, very detailed in our review of the criminal justice system and some of the cases that go through it. Uh, I'm Jim Mitchell, but what's more important is that James Dore is with us. And we're going to today dissect a recent appellate court decision from the Illinois First District. And um, it's the uh, Andre Cummings case. And James, in reading about this uh, judgment by Justice Burke, it, boy, boy, I don't know where to start, but I think we've got a lot to talk about today. So thanks for being here. We do, Jim. We do. And I appreciate the buildup. And, it, it, you know, the, the defense attorneys are important. The more important are, are people's rights. And so we have to remember that these decisions, they're enforcing you know, rights that are contained in the U.S. Constitution. So we're, we're kind of hashing out details and, and what happened. But ultimately, the Constitution prevailed in this case, and uh, it just shows that the, you know, it, even if you have to take a little extra time and work it through the system, you know, it, sometimes it, 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 the, the system does work properly. It does prevail. I mean, the, the right result mm-hmm. is, is, is eventually had. Well, let's work backwards and start, you know, at the beginning, of course. This case begins with a charge of residential burglary and theft. Um, Can you just give us a quick overview of what was uh, involved and what the charges were? Sure, sure. It involved the theft of a a, a recovered handgun. Apparently the handgun had been used in in attempted murder of three different uh, police officers in in the city of Chicago. So in investigating this this, uh, um, firearm, uh, it was determined that uh, you know it came from a location, a house in Palatine, and the people in Palatine filed a report to report the firearm missing uh, because of its involvement in this crime. I would I would imagine. So, in investigating, Cook County uh, sheriffs investigated the theft of the, the the gun, and they conducted their investigation, and eventually it led them to uh, one Comcast worker who was uh, in the house. Uh, during a four-year time frame, actually, that they were trying to account for when this firearm may have gone missing. So um, there was uh, very little direct evidence uh, until they interviewed this Comcast technician. And the interview process is what we're going to talk about today. Um, And uh, so many steps about it, but when we look at the process that you refer to, the process working, Tell me specifically in this case about something we've talked about before, a motion to suppress. What was uh, Cummings' attorney looking to do, and what, what was that motion? What was the objective? Right. There was a, there was a statement made at the police, uh, state, uh, at the police department incriminating uh, Mr. Cummings. So he made a statement against his interest saying, yes, I, I, you know, something in effect of I took the firearm out of the home. 
uh, I, I kept it in my uh, vehicle. I was going to use it in a music video, and it was stolen out of my vehicle. So he was explaining his involvement with the gun that he saw it while working at the house and, and everything. So, but the, it was his statements alone that provided all the evidence that was really used against Mr. Cummings in this trial. So the motion to suppress evidence in, in filing that, the defense attorney was trying to prohibit the prosecutors from using that statement that was made while Mr. Cummings was in custody for over eight hours. They wanted mm-hmm. to seek to suppress that from being used against him at trial. Okay, so that's the defense attorney, and it's, you know, we talk about this, but when you're looking at constitutional violations, um, defense attorney, best practices are to file that motion. The prosecutor has a response, has an obligation to, or uh, opportunity to respond to that in writing, and then the judge will conduct a hearing where you know, both sides are, uh, present evidence, present uh, witnesses, cross-examine those witnesses, and the judge makes a determination whether or not the, this, uh, ultimately whether or not the statement should be suppressed or not. Well, and we're going to follow up on that, but let's talk about the conditions under which that statement was made. And um, first of all, you know, what, what's the relevance, if any, to the fact, as I read this case, that, that Mr. Cummings had actually just voluntarily gone to the police station. They said they wanted to question him, so he went in and said, sure, what, you know, I'm here. Um, tell me about his being there voluntarily. Well, it's relevant for a couple of reasons. One, the officers didn't have probable cause to place him under arrest. If they had, they would have or should have. But instead, they asked him to come down, Mr. Cummings to come down, and talk to them about a matter. Right? They leave it open-ended. So he voluntarily goes to the police station. So presumably not under arrest. We can go to the police mm-hmm. department and talk to any officers willing to talk to us for any, any amount of time. So it's a free, supposedly a free encounter. But what had, had happened is... You know, they, they first sat down and he, he made a statement and basically, I don't know if he, I think he originally made a statement that he was at the house, but that that was it. It was, he worked mm-hmm. for Comcast and had been at the house. But um, after being held uh, for, like I said, eight hours, um, but initially um, they wanted to conduct a polygraph. All right, so this, this warning bell is going off. The, uh, the mm-hmm. detectives involved here want to conduct a polygraph. They made him wait in the interview room, which was locked, while they got the other officer who conducts these polygraphs to come in. So that took about a, an hour to get that. Um, one of the relevances of that is with a case, one of the cases that the judge pointed out, um, they were able to distinguish that because in that case, uh, somebody had uh, gone down to the police department and left and then come back for a polygraph. They were allowed to voluntarily just just go home. They were allowed to leave and basically schedule that polygraph. But here they held mm-hmm. him in custody in a locked interview room. Um, and even uh, later on, one of the officers testified that he wasn't free to leave. So, you know, the voluntariness comes down to... Uh, um, you know, his being at the police station, and he can make a voluntary statement. But as you're kept at the police station for a longer period of time, that voluntariness can dissipate based on mm-hmm. your treatment and based on what, what's happening at that police department. And um, he was, he, you said there, over eight hours. And under what conditions? He was, you know, he was not just being interviewed. He was uh, placed in a in a rather uh, confining location and kept there, was he not? Right. It's this interview room. It's 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 in the police department. It's it, as they described it. It was a ten by twelve room, with a bench where somebody can be handcuffed to the bench or shackled to a bench. Um, so it's a holding room, not just an interview room, and it's mm-hmm. basically featureless. It's it's windowless. 
Um, I, we don't know if he had a, access to a watch or not, or a clock to know what time it was. But how long you're held in a room without a clock can sometimes make it fear, make it seem even longer if you don't know why you're mm-hmm. there. Um, but it, 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 he was uh, subject to multiple questioning from multiple detectives in this case. Miranda warnings given multiple times, and it was you know it, ultimately they ruled that the statement. Um, because he was not under arrest and because the, uh, the police officers lacked probable cause to place Mr. Cummings under arrest before he made that statement and ultimately ruled that the statement was inadmissible because it was obtained illegally. So based on those three reasons, uh, uh, Mr. Cummings' statement was suppressed. It does come down to the condition of the room and other factors that were pointed out in some of the mm-hmm. case law that was discussed. Well, again, you've hit on a couple of things here I want to circle back to, and, and we're talking with James Dore, attorney from Lavelle Law, um, getting into the uh, Andre Cummings case here in Illinois, an appellate court decision that uh, overruled uh, an earlier verdict. And you, you mentioned uh, Miranda warnings, and that's, you know, we've talked about that a number of times. Um, does the timing of the Miranda reading matter in this case? Uh it, it's one of the factors that, that played into it, and it was one of the factors that they pointed to as a reasonable person innocent of a crime being read Miranda warnings. That could actually mm-hmm. be one of the factors that that used that was used by the court to indicate that he may not that he would have subjectively thought he was under arrest or objectively thought he was under arrest. Yeah, and that, that question of whether or not someone is under arrest, I believe, was that the Washington case that the appellate court referred to because it laid out certain standards, and I, I know you find that interesting in terms of how to use that particular verdict. Right. It's a good case for a number of reasons. One, it, it does list them out in a nice format of, here, here's ten factors that, that could be used. So it's a good mm-hmm. summary of prior case law and, and saying, in Illinois, these factors are important. So they, they're factors that, to, that could be used to determine by uh, a reviewing court uh, in the totality of the sac- uh, circumstances whether or not a reasonably innocent person would have considered uh, himself free to leave. So those are the factors that, that can be used according to the Washington case. And and kind of recap for us, because ultimately, first of all, in, in the trial court, Mr. Cummings was found guilty. I want you to talk about the sentence he received. Um, and then kind of take us through the, the appellate court and what their finding was, what the outcome was uh, at, at the end of their their ruling. Right. Well, the trial court um, it let the, allowed the, the statement to come in. There was almost entirely the, the, uh, the, the evidence that was used to prove guilt, or there was some of the, the strongest evidence to produce to, uh, to, for the ruling of guilt in this case against Mr. Mm-hmm. Cummings. Um, ultimately, the appellate court... Uh, ruled that the statement should have been inadmissible, should not have come in, and they remanded it to the trial court level uh, um, for ruling for proceedings consistent with that ruling. So if they were to try this case again, the prosecutors, they could not use that statement against Mr. Cummings. So eventually, eight months after this, this decision was handed down by, by the appellate court, they moved to dismiss the case at the trial court level rather than proceed because they they knew they couldn't meet their burden of proof. Yeah, and um, what's your thought on on this case in terms of how it was handled and, again, the order of things and the conditions he was placed under? I mean, at what point did the um, police claim they had probable cause, and how was that sort of exposed in in the court process? 
Well, the rule, the, the appellate court ruled that he was uh, he was placed under arrest at least at the time he was placed back in the interview room after the polygraph. That's when they said it. it they mm-hmm. termed it in as far as at, at least at this point he was under arrest. But again, they, there was no probable cause for the arrest before the polygraph, and it was only mm-hmm. because the police used information illegally obtained in this polygraph that they found polygraph found probable cause. So, you know, it was, it's a ruling that you can't just uh, bring somebody to the police station, even though it's voluntarily, and hold them indefinitely until you can form probable cause for the arrest. That's not how it's supposed to work. In order for somebody to be placed under arrest, police need to have probable cause initially. All right? And, and I know in this something case, very... Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, very important to you, because I'm, I'm looking at the clock here, and I want to make sure you get a chance to talk about it, was... Um, the, the the fact that he never asked for an attorney, and we talked about the Miranda warning, but, you know, from your perspective, just going in voluntarily, staying there as long as he did, submitting to the polygraph, it sounds to me like there were just too many places along the way that the defendant should have said, wait a minute, I'm not saying anything else until I've got someone here with me. Right. It wasn't until the following day when they, when they came back to him again and asked him to put it in writing, that this is confession in writing, that he thought, you know what, maybe I need a lawyer. So it was that point that he decided. And it's it's important because, you know, in this case, he was dealing with trained interrogators. One of the detectives was trained administering the polygraph, and he was alone. He was alone in, in this room and held, and who knows, from his point of view, he doesn't know how long he's being held. He doesn't know if he's under arrest or not. So he needed a little help. So at that point, that's where we want to say, look, I want to, I want to talk to a lawyer, and I'm going to remain silent until I get a chance to talk to my lawyer. And that's it. They have to stop questioning at that point, and then the court has to ultimately appoint a lawyer for you. Yeah, and those are the rights uh, that certainly everyone is entitled to. And I, I think one last thing before I let you go, we've got a minute or so left, but but I know you, you like this case based on the way the appellate court used case law. We refer to that sometimes. G- give me your thoughts on that as well. Well, I mean, like like we pointed out, the the, the use of that Washington case, the, the, the careful analysis of, of all the factors, um, the, the when you talked about attorneys' roles, there was there was a clear record laid out at the trial court level. So the appellate court was able to look at all those factors, kind of piece them into the case law that fits, and come out with a ruling that ultimately favored the, the defendant in this case. Um, the defendant prevailed because his his confession should have been suppressed at the trial court level, and ultimately that's what the trial the, the appellate court found and and. Eventually, justice prevailed that the case was dismissed ultimately. Right. That's what we always like to see, and I appreciate uh, James Dorr for joining us to talk us through this very interesting case. Um, you can always learn more by just calling James directly if you have uh, concerns or issues, um, 847-705-7555. Visit lavellelaw.com to get some background. Uh, all of our podcasts are there, as well as articles and videos that he has done and certainly appreciate his time and appreciate all of you listening. We'll look forward to a conversation again coming up soon. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.